Big Mouth Evangelical, Watching the Firm, Adopting 11 Kids. Today on The Pursuit, Dave Swaim. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Dave Swaim. Dave is a senior pastor of High Rock Church in Arlington, Massachusetts, and leads the High Rock Network of Churches, which is 10 churches all around the Boston area. He was born and raised in Boston, and he now lives and pastors in Boston. But those two bookends of his life look and feel very different from each other. Dave's heart to live for God led him away from Boston, away from law school, and away from the conventional family. So Dave, I noticed on your LinkedIn that you actually spent a few years working at Harvard Business School. Was that like a um, goodwill hunting thing that you were like waiting to be recognized as a genius? Maybe not exactly that. That was actually my way of paying my way through seminary. Well, fair enough. You grew up in Boston your whole life, right? I did. Born in Boston. uh, Spent my uh, early years here uh, in late elementary school. Actually, we moved to London. And so I spent a few years living in, uh, in London and then moved back here moved back here, right back into the same house, same neighborhood, all that kind of stuff. What moved you guys to London? So my dad was an attorney and he became the uh, private attorney for uh, a guy a guy named Adnan Khashoggi. Some people know that name. Khashoggi, some of you guys recognize the name. It was the, the uh, re- uh, reporter who was killed. Well, uh, this was one of his older relatives who was at the time one of the richest men in the world. And he, he was the guy who financed Iran-Contra, um, all that. My dad for a while became his private lawyer. He worked in Saudi Arabia, but it was not a hospitable place for us to live at the time. And so we lived in London. He just commuted back and forth. You must have had some opinion of your father growing up during that time of like this jet setting power mover in the world. Uh, A little bit. So I think part of it, I think every kid has that image of their dad. Uh, You know, your dad is sort of a hero. Uh, And I, and so I think, and yes, I had all of that, but the people we grew up among, uh, you know, we grew up in a, a neighborhood where my dad probably in our neighborhood was a small fish. And so I don't think I had that idea. You know, I actually felt like we were probably less wealthy, less worldly, uh, less influential than some of the people around me. We had one month in which three of my neighbors, like on my street, were on the covers of major national magazines, Fortune, Time, <laughs> and Newsweek. And so my dad was not at that level. So you grew up in Boston, I assume in a wealthy suburb? Yep. I grew up in a, a, a well-to-do suburb. You know, it's kind of everything you think of when you think of white privilege. It was one Wonderful, to be honest. It was, uh, you know, none of of the moms worked. And we spent summers at everybody's homes in New Hampshire and kind of just going all around there. So it was it was really a a wonderful way to grow up. And it's just good people and interesting people. Uh, I think there was it was because of this climate, there was a chance to have access to kinds of conversations uh, that were really stimulating and challenging. And you know, when I wanted to go do a report on something, I could call one of my friend's dads who was probably an expert in that. Mm. Uh, and that just was a, an incredible privilege. You know, it's an interesting thing. Some people who grow up in sort of the white majority culture feel like I don't have culture, right? This is sort of the thing that you're referencing. That's right. Um, but because of the different experiences that you've had, you had this sort of fundamental understanding of your culture. We're talking at a time where growing up in a wealthy white neighborhood is something that, I don't know how to say this, but 
I imagine someone who grew up in a wealthy white neighborhood might feel bad about or apologize for or be sheepish about it. But right now, you're right that privilege is itself something to be ashamed of. And I think that that actually is part of what keeps us from using our privilege well. It privilege is more than just white privilege, right? There's obviously the privilege of education. There's the privilege of finances. There's the privilege of connections. Right. You know, there's so many forms of privilege, uh, just male privilege. I mean, there's so many forms of it. And I think most of us who have any of these, all of them, as the case may be, any of us who have them usually try to deny their influence in our lives because it plays against this myth that we have that I'm a self-made person, right? This is the kind of the American myth. I am responsible for my achievement. And the, of course, subtext of that is you are responsible for your failure. Right. But I think once we can embrace privilege and say, okay, I do have access, I do have connections, I do have resources, I do have education, I have all of these things that other people don't have. And it is not because I am somehow intrinsically superior to others. I started the, the race 10 feet from the finish line. Right. Uh, and so, of course, I won. And so in that sense, I feel like if I can embrace that and say, all right, in the, in the larger body, all of us have a role. And I think those of us with privilege have a role. But if we don't play that role because we deny the role is real, well, then the whole body suffers. Right. And I think, okay, I was given education. How do I leverage that for others who weren't? I was given resources. How do I leverage that for those who weren't? I had an intact family, right? That itself is a privilege. How do I leverage that for those who weren't? Uh, you know, in all those things, be able to recognize these things, not as, as entitlements, but as really in the most literal sense as gifts from God, but they're gifts not for me. They're gifts for the world. And so how do I then make those available to help others? And other people, as they use their forms of privilege in the same way, you know, whether it's wisdom or intelligence or empathy, you know, all of us have these different gifts. And if we can imagine all of them as these gifts from God rather than as things to be ashamed of, and then offered them to each other, man, wouldn't our world be different? Right. So let's get back to your story. Growing up in this place where your father's successful, you're growing up in this successful neighborhood. How did you feel about your own sort of pressure about like your own success and your own career? Well, I, I think you're right that there was the assumption that we would be successful. And it was almost a, a requirement. Uh, when I was a freshman in high school, you and I are both old enough to remember that Barron's used to publish these thick books every year in which they ranked every single college. Right. And so my mother gave me that list, uh, only the first page of it, and she <laughs> circled 20 universities. This is when I was a freshman in high school. So here's the 20 universities you can go to. If you get into one of these, we pay for everything. If you don't, we won't, and you can't live here. Good luck. And so I, I never got any pressure about my academics. I never got any, but it was very clear there was so much intrinsic pressure that if I don't succeed, you know, I, I have squandered this opportunity, which, you know, it's not entirely untrue. I was given this massive opportunity, but there was a, a, a kind of expectation that was both internal and external that, yeah, success was kind of a non-negotiable. And so if I got a B, the man alive, you know, I, I talked to some of my friends who were like, oh, my family, if I got a, a, a you know, a B, I'd be in big trouble. I thought, man, this is, my family was that way. You know, it's, it's some, some ethnic groups think they have sort of an edge on that. And I go, yeah, you can say it. It's Asians. Well, yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, I, you know, often because I work in a church that is predominantly Asian, right? And so uh, they often say, oh, you know, you don't understand what it's like growing up in an Asian family. I'm thinking to myself, friend, you don't understand what it's like growing up in an Asian family. I know what it's like growing up in an Asian family. <laughs> you know, the, kind of the tiger mom. Yeah. My mom wrote for the Journal of American Medical Association, you know, before she had kids. Like, 
she had high expectations. Yeah. And you know, there was fear in that. There was fear that I would be rejected. Uh, there was the fear that I, you know, I'd be out, out of the family. You know, again, that whole, we won't pay for college and you can't live here was, you know, it was very clear to me. So I got to ask, Dave, did you go to one of those top 20 colleges? I did by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> I made it into one of them. So I'm the black sheep in the family. Um, William and Mary at the time was in the top 20, but it, I think has subsequently fallen slightly below. But uh, my older brother went to Duke. My younger brother went to Harvard. I was the idiot <laughs> who ended up at, at not a top five school. When you go to college, what job, what career did you have in mind? Well, there was no real conversation about that. I was going to be an attorney, right? My dad's an attorney. My older brother's an attorney. My aunt and uncle's an attorney. Huh. Everybody in my family, I have multiple folks in my family who are attorneys. And so eventually I figured I'd be an attorney and my little brother, of course, would be an attorney. Like that was what we do. And we'd eventually be swaim, 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 and swaim. <laughs> Uh, you know, attorneys at law. And that's how I imagined it. Um, so I became a Christian very late in high school. I was such a new Christian, but there was this nascent kind of desire in me to do something that made a difference and to actually influence things in a way that mattered. And that's why I think politics was interesting. I thought, okay, maybe there's a way to make a difference here that is maybe more than just making money. So when you begin to explore different options in college of career, what was that journey like for you? Did you feel like you were sort of leaving the family? How did, the, how did your parents react? Uh, no, I graduated believing that I was going to go to law school next. Okay. I just, it never even occurred to me that that wouldn't be a part of the plan. It was just a matter of what I would do with that law degree. The way that I really made the switch in the ministry while I was a college student, I was attending a church, uh, kind of this local evangelical church, and the senior pastor had invited me into his small group. And so it was a whole bunch of older guys and, and, uh, and me. And, you know, he was purposely kind of grooming me and whatever. Uh, and so he said, hey, you're going to go to law school, right? You'll be so busy. And, you know, da, da, da. Why, we, why don't we do this? I'll pay you for a year just to follow me around. Work for me for a year. Do your law school applications. Wait for your wife, your girlfriend to graduate. Get married. And then go to law school together, you know, wherever you're going to go. Oh, that's a great plan. So I started to work at that church. Here, I had this goal, like I wanted to be a part of making a difference. I thought power was either in money or politics. That's all I'd ever seen. But I, I'd never seen spiritual power. Mm. And seeing him minister to some of these people and the way their lives changed was confounding for me. But the big one, when I was in college, again, I'm a new Christian with a big mouth, <laughs> right? That's a terrible combination. There was a religion professor who had been a Christian when he was young, but was no longer Christian. And his sport was finding the big mouth evangelical and basically using that guy as a foil in his class. Right. And of course, I came right out of central casting. I was perfect. <laughs> and so he and I would debate all the time, but I was so young and so arrogant. I had this belief, I'm going to win him over. And I studied and studied and studied. I was going to I was going to defeat him with some kind of incredible arguments. Uh, and I am wired a little nerdy. I read a ton and I'd come in and he would just tear me apart. Uh, and the guy was just, he was brilliant. He read everything I'd read 10 times. I mean, he would make me look foolish and feel foolish and humiliated. And this guy was just, it was, he was just unassailable. His wife got cancer my senior year. I did not know that. Uh, and things did not go well. One day we're in the office and that guy, that professor walks into the church. I'm the shadow, so I get to sit in on all these meetings, which was very interesting. Here, this guy comes in for this very vulnerable conversation with the pastor, and me, right, the kid he's been making fun of all these years, right. I'm there. And the professor ends up 
talking about, hey, my wife's in this situation, it's stage four cancer, da 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 da, things are terrible. And I needed to talk to someone that I knew had been with God. Like, like that, to hear something like that from me, hear this guy had this intellectual power that I so envied and thought was the real force, source of power. Right. And he was talking about something bigger, something more, something more meaningful, more true. And so, anyway, he, uh, he then shares this whole story. So my pastor talks to this guy and meets with the wife and they pray together. They start praying together regularly. And lo and behold, in what I really can only say is a miracle, she was healed. Wow. And they became Christians and they were baptized. And being able to see all of that, it made me realize there is something more than financial power. There's something more than intellectual power. There's something more than political power. God's power actually changes lives. And after that, interestingly, I never completed a single law school application. I just like, this is what I want. I want to be in this space. I want to be in these conversations. When people come in and God has been shaking their cage and they don't know why or what, and they come in and they want to, they just need to talk to somebody about what's real and true and who God is. I want to be in that room. And it was very difficult. And in fact, this is going to really seem stupid. You may want to cut this out. <laughs> the turning point that God used in my life, I, I, I feel sheepish even telling you about it. I love it. Was the movie, The Firm. <laughs> really? Yeah. The Tom Cruise movie. And, and so my family, were, we were not allowed to cry ever. Like even if you were severely injured, you were not allowed to cry and we would get in trouble for crying. Uh, and so crying is just, it's not natural for me. I don't know how to do it. I don't, I haven't really like cried, like wept cried in 30 years, 40, I don't know, something. I mean, just, I just don't do it. But that movie, I watched that movie and I just, I like cried through the whole thing and then got in the car afterwards in the parking lot with my wife and cried for, I don't know, 45 minutes. The firm? The firm. But here's the reason. Because I, I identified so much with Mitch, the kind of central character, Tom Cruise's character. Yeah. He was so wanting to prove himself, all that kind of stuff. And it was offered money and offered women and offered power and um, kind of acceptance to the club. He was offered all of those things that I found tempting, right? That kind of, I had grown up believing these are all the sources of life. Yeah. It all looks so beautiful on the outside. Uh, and and he wanted the, those things so much to satisfy something in himself that he was then basically being asked to sell his soul to do it. Huh. And uh, and I realized in that moment, like I was being asked to make a decision. And I really feel like God used that. I know it's weird, but like the Holy Spirit can use anything. And uh, in that day, sitting in that car that night, I made a covenant with God that I will never, ever again make a major life decision based on money. That can never be a part of my calculus. Uh, and I feel like it was that day that that sort of like that demon of of lust for all those things was defeated. It's like a part of you died. Well, I would say was was actually crucified. Yeah, a, a part of the sinful nature. It, it finally, like it was able to be seen, and I had to make a choice. And I feel like that was the crucifixion of the flesh in, in, in just this one piece. Obviously, I kept lots of my other sins, so they were well, they were well <laughs> intact. But, but I felt like that one lost its grip on me. It, but what I was doing with that was also giving up the approval of my father. And I realized I had to choose between my heavenly father and my earthly father. And I felt like that was all, that was all part of that package. I'd just give that up and say, that's it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm done playing that game forever. I am going to choose God's approval. Yeah. But here's the beautiful part of the story. Years later, my father ended up becoming a Christian and had this massive change of heart. And he then said, and I look at my life and I feel like I've wasted my entire life. And I feel, I feel ashamed of, of what I've done. And I, I envy you. I wish I had had the, the courage and the knowledge or whatever to be able to make the kind of life decisions at your age that you're making. And for me, like it would be difficult for me to express 
how meaningful that was, that I feel like I gave up my father's approval for the kingdom. That was one of those things I had to lay down that felt like a real cost of discipleship. And then God just said, great, thank you. Here it is again. And my father now, oh, he's just, he's so tender. He's so different. He's so warm. He's just, he's unbelievable. I mean, he's really, he, he teaches Sunday school at my church. You know, he's fantastic. I just, I, it's hard for me to believe what God has done in his life. It's just, it's so beautiful to me. So then how did you end up at High Rock? Well, I had been working at Park Street, uh, which Park Street Church is a big church, downtown Boston. It's a wonderful church. Uh, it's still a wonderful church. And Gordon Hugenberg was senior pastor, and I loved that man and just thought he's the Christian I want to be when I grow up. And so I planned to stay there forever. You know, just like I'd been in Virginia, I was very happy there. I was at Park Street, very, very happy there. I planned to stay there forever. But Gordon then, and he then was just really plain. He says, you know, you are not an associate pastor. You are a leader. You need to go be the leader. I just, I, like, what? No, this is, it was all wrong. I couldn't see it, but I sort of had to accept it. As I was looking for jobs, as a side project, this little uh, group that was kind of a Bible study that was meeting in a home contacted me, asked if I would just walk along with them, help them as they were, they wanted to start a church. They felt like God was calling them to start a church. And if I would just walk with them and kind of teach them how to do that. Yeah. And so 20 years later, High Rock is now this network of 10 churches all around Boston. Yeah, it's uh, it's really taken off. And it's just kind of one of these things I didn't see coming. And, you know, a lot of people uh, seem to have this plan that they work out all these years ago. I remember I read Rick Warren's um, famous book about church growth. And he just, it seemed to me that he had the entire thing planned out before he did it and just was executing on this brilliant strategy. Uh, for me, it was the opposite, that uh, I felt like God would give me a, one vision for one small piece and then another, and then another, and another. And a lot of the things that were so good were things we didn't even plan. Uh, and we just learned to capitalize on it and just come to recognize, I'm sure that I'm not the, the most skilled church planter or church leader out there, that's for sure. But I think what we've learned to do is recognize we don't get to control the waves, but we get to be in that position to ready to ride the waves. Yeah. And so we wait for the waves to come. And I think part of the discipline of leadership is learning to say no to a lot of really good ideas because you realize, hey, yeah, that's something we probably could do and it would be a good thing, but it's not the God thing right now. And we've just got to wait, wait, wait until the waves start to come and then be in a position to ride. And, um, and I, I, that's, you know, what we've done and it's led us here and I don't know where it's going to lead us next, uh, but it's, it's been really an incredible adventure. Yeah. One of the things that I've always appreciated about your leadership is that you didn't build the, the network around one person that you were mm -hmm. very intentional about elevating other people around you. And, you know, there's a lot of churches that build and grow around the cult of personality and the main leader. And I've always appreciated that about you and your leadership. And that seems to have been a very intentional choice for you. Well, you know, in the beginning, it, it was in part because of my own spiritual journey. When I first became a Christian, I went to a, you know, the place where I actually met Jesus had this incredibly charismatic rock star pastor, you know, the classic celebrity pastor that everybody knows his name and he's on the cover of magazines. And I'm not sure when I became a follower of Jesus, but I, well, actually I am sure it was several years after I became a follower of this guy. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't, I didn't much sure I'd figured out the Jesus thing yet, but I'd figured out I wanted to be like him. And, yeah. and so, you know, he just had us all under his thrall. I mean, he was just so magnetic. And, and it was wonderful. And he would talk about Jesus. You know, it was just, it seemed that the church was flourishing. But then, just one of these classic uh, stories where he had an affair, was trying to be covered up, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I tell you, I was crushed. Yeah. Because, you know, I just, I believed in this guy. I patterned my life after this guy. I was so 
crushed. And it, it really set me spinning uh, spiritually. But it was, of course, it was a, a good thing and that God was weaning me away from, you know, believing in people right. into believing truly in him. And I feel like there was, okay, there's this huge gift that God gave, but it was a painful gift. But one of the things I realized, because uh, this guy was smart and uh, dedicated and, and charismatic and, and disciplined. I mean, he had all of the pieces and yet, you know, he fell and it hurt so many people. And my parents at that point had started coming to church you know, trying to figure it all out. Yeah. And that was it. They were done after that. And that really set back their, their discipleship journey. My brother, uh, my brothers, my older brother, especially really got involved in the church. Um, but after that never has given church another shot again. And every time we talk about anything spiritual, it comes up, uh, oh, here we go again. Yeah. I, I was just so crushed by that. that I, I resolved that when I became a pastor, I would do things very differently. And a big piece of it was, you know, if you end up building a, something around one individual, there's a single point of failure. And that really makes Satan's work pretty easy. You want to take down one person and thousands fall. Right. So I wanted to build a little bit more of, you know, sort of thinking about, you know, the original AOL architecture was, they had, it was all based on one node. Everything went into one central node. Well, if, <laughs> if there was a, a bomb that blew up that central server farm, AOL was done. Whereas the whole concept of the internet is that it's actually multiple nodes. So if one gets bombed, no big deal. The traffic just routes a different way. And I thought that's the way I want to build our church leadership uh, is having multiple nodes. And so that it's not so dependent on one person or personality. And I think the most common way and honestly, the most effective way, if you're just looking for, for strict numbers, building a celebrity culture works. And people love celebrities. They love identifying with it. I totally understand the appeal. I understand how it can be used for Jesus. But we have seen again and again and again and again, and even recently again, how that so often fails. And so what we try to do uh, very deliberately is not build the, the church around a single person or personality, me, uh, but instead to build it around a network of relationships. And I would say, if anything else, this is, you know, kind of like our secret sauce. Yeah. The, in the very beginning, our church was not built around me. It was built around the relationship between me and Peter Sung, my uh, first associate and who had been with the church from the beginning. And, you know, we had this incredibly rich relationship. We, we loved each other. We challenged each other. We argued, but like in the, in the best way, we both grew so much. There was so much honesty, so much transparency, so much accountability. And the church was built around that relationship. Part of the conversation about having diverse voices, being able to speak into things makes me think of your latest initiative with the church after 2020 and sort of the racial unrest and the reckoning, I'd say, you know, white pastors, white churches, you know, one of the things that you and I talked about was this Revelation 7 faculty that you've set up at the church, uh, of which I'm a part. I, I'd love for you to be able to just talk us through a little bit about the idea and how it's been implemented. Well, you're right. That's all started after uh, the murder of George Floyd. And realizing we need to make a change. I, I think I had the advantage of, you know, I, I have seven black children uh, and I've seen firsthand the way when they are operating in these white spaces, the way that they are, are treated differently. It, you know, we've had several bad interactions with police hmm. that just would never happen to me. And so I think there was a way that I got turned on to some of this, but I realized I had been way too patient, way too passive. You know, I knew it was an issue. I'd preached about it, but there are so many other ways that I was just being compliant and not rocking the boat. And I, I realized after the George Floyd murder, murder that that couldn't happen. But I also knew, you know, as much as everybody's all upset that, you know, we were just one crazy Trump tweet away from people's attention being diverted to that. And now they don't care about this anymore. Right. And we all know that change in churches can be very slow. 
but I felt like this was a moment when people were desperate for something big and would be willing to suspend those normal systems and allow for big change because they all could recognize that we needed it. And so I wanted to jump in on that, make a big change, but then also make sure that our attention to this would outlast the news cycle. You know, that it wouldn't just go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Right. The summer uh, after his murder, I committed ourselves to a few things that would bring us closer to racial justice in dealing with some of our racial sin and kind of the baked in white supremacy. One of the things that we did was to bring on a, a faculty of teachers of color onto our preaching team. Now, we already rotate preaching, uh, so that's not unusual that you know, nobody in any one of our churches would see me very frequently, right? We're, we do team teaching. But we added these uh, six new voices based on Revelation 7, where we get that vision of the, you know, the church in heaven that's every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, all worshiping together before the throne of God. And so we, we brought on these six faculty, two African-American women, an African-American man, a Latino man, a, a Sri Lankan uh, man, and uh, you, uh, an Asian man, to be able to help us hear voices that we weren't hearing. I think what ends up happening is my stories become normative, right? The stories of the people who are up front become normative. The two primary ways that we see power or culture created in churches is through preaching and through leadership. And so those are going to be the key levers to change things. And so we ended up uh, asking some uh, of our African-American members to step into leadership in a new way. And I think in that season, they were ready to and realized, hey, people are really going to hear my voice and care about it. Uh, and so we didn't want them just to have a place at the table, but power at the table. Yeah. And that was actually a really key component. But then we also got these preachers because we realized the pulpit is a place where a lot of power subtly is exercised. And we weren't asking them to preach about race. We're asking them to preach in our sermon series as one of our preachers. Uh, just preach about whatever we're preaching about, but preach as who you are. Preach in your style. Tell the stories from your life. Tell the, you know, ask the questions that you ask, which honestly are going to be different from the questions that I ask right. because we have different life experience. And it stops centering whiteness. It stops making whiteness normal and then ends up just allowing us to have all these diverse voices, all these diverse perspectives that honor these different cultures and allow more people to recognize themselves in all these places. And so we committed ourselves to have this faculty that has kind of been in our, our team. And I'll tell you, it has been fantastic. The other thing we did is hired one of them to be the faculty chair. And she also now sits on our board and is every month is instructing our board. Uh, she's creating a, a framework by which to evaluate our church and hold us accountable. It's been this incredible gift and everybody has loved it. I, I, I never get complaints in our church about this, <laughs> even though it was a pretty radical change, uh, but people recognize these are voices we were not hearing before. And, and in fact, now what I'm doing is taking this, I'm realizing, you know, another key way that culture is transmitted in a church is through worship. And we have a very limited playlist uh, of songs that kind of the, the big multi-ethnic evangelical churches use, which are all kind of white songs. Right, right. So I'm, one of the things I'm trying to develop right now, and I actually had a conversation with somebody today, is about developing a Revelation 7 worship faculty. Mm, yeah. We'll come in and lead worship in different ways so that, again, we, we just start to hear more of the kingdom. It's going to make everybody feel more at home, right? Everyone will hear their, their kind of personal style more, and it's going to make everybody uncomfortable, that we're all going to have to stretch to embrace yeah. the body. And uh, I really think this can be an incredible gift. You had mentioned your seven black children, and uh, I'd love to hear the story of how you and Michelle worked to build your family. So my wife and I had struggled for uh, many years to, to get pregnant, mm. which was not a big deal to me. Uh, I had not really wanted many kids. I, I, I felt like, gosh, I'm, I'm so passionate about the work that I do. I didn't, 
I didn't want that much distraction, but I was willing to have a couple. For her, she grew up as a single child of a single mom. And so for her, the idea of having family was everything. And so when we were kids, we used to joke, she'd say, oh, one day I'm going to have 10 kids. And I'd say, yeah, one day I'm going to be president of the United States. And I thought they were about equally likely to happen. <laughs> but then we couldn't have any kids. And for her, that was devastating, not just you know emotionally, like it is, but actually theologically. Like here, I feel like I've given my life to Christ. I feel like I had this call and this passion that I've had my entire life. I've only wanted to do one thing, but I felt like that was sort of this calling from God. And now you're telling me like, God's not going to let me do it. Mm. And it was very painful. But then, you know, I was working at Park Street Church at the time, and there was a woman at Park Street. She was not a, a member at Park Street. She had gotten pregnant. It was a pregnancy that was, uh, was going to create a lot of problems for her, very disruptive to the families involved. And kind of desperately, she came to Park Street at night where I was presiding one time. And she claims, you know, and what I, I have no reason to say not, she claims that she got this vision that God really just told her, that is the father of your child. That's the person who should raise this child. Wow. And so she, uh, through a, a mutual acquaintance, she asked, hey, I know this is crazy, but would you be willing to do this? And my wife and I thought this is crazy because by this time the, the child now had been born. And uh, okay, yes. And, and we were not prepared. We had not planned. We did not do any of the legal work. And so we took this child home and then had to, you know, we had to do a bunch of the legal work. So we had to, to get some pieces started first. And here was suddenly we had a son. Wow. And that is not how we'd planned to start a family. In my family, adoption was definitely not looked on favorably. Kind of the whole idea of bloodline and genetics and whatever. Sure. But we had this wonderful son and there's something about a baby that just wins everybody over. It's hard not to fall in love with a baby. And so I feel like we were able to get past that because, uh, you know, he's a, a, a white baby, I, I think in that sense, sort of passed in, in our family. Yeah. And so then Michelle and I kind of thought, well, hey, this, this is kind of neat. And we ended up deciding, okay, we're going to adopt a second child, but if we're going to do this, this is the one that we, this is the only adoption that we ever went into thinking, let's plan this. Let's actually go and do the, the right steps and you know, all that. Yeah. You know, we, we decided we were going to do it. So we then uh, went to uh, adopt a second child and we decided we wanted to adopt a child that wouldn't necessarily be adopted immediately because any healthy white baby, there's lines waiting for them. And we said, no, we don't want to do that. We want to find a child who, you know, might not necessarily be kind of at the first uh, front line. And, uh, and so we ended up deciding we we're going to adopt a child from Korea because at that time, right, right now, forget it, there's huge long lines. But back then, that was not the case. And we had this church that was almost exclusively at that time Korean, more than 90% Korean in those days. And so I felt like, hey, our child will always grow up in their culture and, you know, being affirmed that who I am is, you know, beautiful and normal and kind of aspirational. Our child will have heroes who look just like her. So we we're going to adopt a, a child. We did. And it was great. And we had, we had two kids. And by that time, I was like, I'm done. I feel like two. That's a, that's a healthy number. And then my wife just put us on this list of what are, uh, for what are called waiting children, which is children who are, there's some complication and they're not getting adopted. Yeah. Kind of one wacky thing led to another. And we got a call about a, a baby that was just about to be born in uh, Las Vegas from a woman who had come over uh, the border undocumented. And kind of there's a whole bunch of weird situations. And this group called us and said, hey, would you be willing to do this? And great. So we went down Spent two weeks in Las Vegas. Uh, I'm pretty sure that my son is the only child ever who was taken out of the hospital and on that same day was at the Bellagio. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I was trying to get a photo op where I had him like pulling the, the lever on one of those uh, slot machines. Uh, the security didn't allow it, but I was gonna be like, hey, lucky college, come on now. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, it was pretty abrupt. We, uh, we got the call. We got the first flight out to Vegas. Uh, got to meet with his birth mom, spent a few days with her. Anyway, so then we had kind of this funny family. We had a uh, you know, white son, uh, Asian daughter, a Mexican son, 
and three, we're really good. Like that's, that's a full size family. How about that? How about that? Yeah. So then we got a call one day out of the blue from a doctor in our congregation. It's actually not a call. It was originally, it was an email. And what had happened is a, a, uh, a group of refugees. I don't know if they still do this. I assume that they still do, but uh, maybe under the Trump administration, not so much. What they did is the UN refugee relocation program just filled up an airplane with people in a refugee camp and then fly them to various destinations in the West and drop off a whole bunch. Hey, here's 30 get off here, 50 get off here, da, 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 and just keep on going. And most of these are either intact families or they're babies who are all gonna get adopted fairly easily. And it just becomes the responsibility of the local jurisdiction, hey, deal with this. And so three kids, got three teenagers got dropped off in, they, these are kids who literally come right out of a refugee camp in Africa. They had no experience in the West, no English skills, you know, uh, had never had any education in any, any language. The teenagers get dropped at Logan Airport in Boston. And so an APB went out, because this is going to be a little bit more of a complicated case, to all the social service agencies. And one of the doctors in our congregation received it at our hospital and then forwarded to us and said, hey, would you guys ever consider this? And, you know, my first thought was, this is the dumbest thing ever. What? Three teenagers who don't speak a word of English? Like, what? No, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, it's just like, like the, you know, the email you get from the kind of Nigerian prince who wants to give you $10 million. <laughs> like, yeah, duh, delete, delete. Okay, the three teenagers, delete. But I, I really wrestled with it because I'd been in India with our denomination a few years before and had been so moved by the way that I saw the Indian Christians living incredibly sacrificially. And mm. because of parents dying and I mean, horrible circumstances, they were adopting not just two and three, they were adopting 20 mm. and 25 children because they felt that's, God, that's what it means to be God's people. And I'd come back from that trip uh, kind of reaffirming that vow that I'd made earlier, I will never make a decision. I actually clarified it. I said, first, I will never make a decision in my life, a major life decision based on keeping me in the American middle class. I cannot be a brother and sister uh. in Christ to these people. You know, the people, the Christians I was just with in India for a few weeks, I, I cannot call myself their brother and sister if I have as a condition for any decision I make in life that I will remain in the American middle class. That, mm. That's done. The second decision I made was, I, I will never say no to a child who comes to me in need. I did not want more kids. I knew my wife would want them, but I did not. I was very resolute about that. Uh, we were done. But I said, if, God, if a, God brings a child to me, we're not going looking. I, I will never say no. And so I thought about that. And I, thought, Listen, I felt like, okay, but this is a different circumstance. This is crazy. And then I thought, well, if I think it's crazy, I'm a Christian, right? You know, our whole story is about adoption. God adopting us as his children. Right. If I didn't think it's crazy, who's going to do this? No one's going to do this. And so then I knew, okay, we got to do this, which I, I, how are we going to do this? I don't know. Crazy. It's impossible. So I, my father is super kind, open-minded to everybody, but my grandfather and my father were the successive presidents of kind of the big all-white country club. Hmm. You know, we were not super diverse. And so then, you know, I brought home an Asian child. Oh gosh, that was a big, but you know, model minority and, and it's a baby right. and she's so cute. And then I brought home a Mexican child. Again, in a lot of places, people go, oh, no big deal. In my family, it was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and so on her deathbed, this is the last conversation I ever had with her. My mother put my hand on her heart. And she said, Dave, I want you to make me one promise. So I want you to promise me that you won't adopt any more children. <sighs> and knowing this commitment that I made in India, I just, I can't, I can't make that promise, but I totally understand what you're saying. Um, and I also knew what she meant. What she meant was, what are you doing with all these kind of people who are not our people getting into this? Yeah. Like, this is not right. And so I'm having that ring in my ears. And I think, okay, I, I got to honor my father. And for me, honoring him was not obeying it, but honoring him was to let him weigh in and talk about it, right? Rather than just doing it and saying, hey, guess what, dad? So I call him up. And I, mean, I remember this so vividly. So I call him. I say, hey, dad, uh, I got this funny situation here I want to talk to you about. And I, I kind of tell him 
a little bit about it, just a bit. And I said, do you even know, because they were part of the Tutsi tribe, I said, do you even know, do you know anything about the whole Tutsi Hutu thing? And he goes, oh, I know all about it. I go, how do you know about that? That seems weird. So he tells me a story. He says, well, funny, so Wednesday night, Paul Kagame, who's the president of Rwanda, was in town getting an award from Harvard and was staying at our uh, neighbor's house. Huh. And my mother had recently died. And so the neighbor said, hey, you know, Tom's done a lot of international interest. My dad has done a lot of international interesting stuff. And so they invited my dad to have dinner, spend the night or the evening with Paul Kagame. And my father was so taken with him, just like, this guy's amazing. The story's incredible. And my father was so taken that he decided to not go to work the next day, which again, for my dad, that's like, huh? <laughs> he instead goes down to the local bookstore, buys Paul's book, and just spends the entire day reading the book. And so he said, uh, as I call him on Friday morning, he said, right now I'm sitting on my back porch. Uh, I've got about six pages left in this book. And I'm just sitting here thinking, huh, somebody's got to do something about all these Tootsie kids. <sighs> Oh my gosh. And that's when I called. And he said, yeah, okay, we'll figure it out. We'll make it work. And I, I just, I can't believe it, right? I'm like, this is impossible. Right. And I'm telling you from day one, my father, he, he just, he embraced them as his own grandchildren from the first moment, even though they couldn't speak a word of English, right? He he's, loves them. And I just, it was incredible. This hap that happened on Friday before Labor Day. So the kids then, I called the place up. Okay, the kids are gonna come live with us starting on, on Monday. Well, I, I gotta, what are we gonna do for school? These kids have never been to school. They're teenagers who've never, like they haven't, it's not that they learned one plus one in French and now need to learn it in English. They never learned one plus one in any language. So they need to learn the language, learn English, and then learn all of that basic stuff. Like this right. is gonna be a, a chore. I call up our local Christian school that we had a good relationship with and just said, hey, I got this weird situation. This is my problem, it's not your problem, but you know, what do you think? And he said, Dave, I, this sounds crazy. I have no idea, but we're gonna figure it out together. We're in this with you. You bring those kids when school opens on Tuesday, we're gonna figure it out. And, uh, and I was like, wow, thank you, God, for brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and he said, but you know, there's something funny, Tootsie, I, I, I swear that there's a woman who came in yesterday who, you know, she, she just moved here from London, but I, I feel like she said, you know, she said that same time. I'm just, well, we, as we're walking to school, schools close by, we meet this other family who's very clearly African. Uh, we meet, we talk. She was in Rwanda and they escaped and went to London. Uh, our kids have had this whole British style education, great English speakers, uh, but their native tongue is the same language that my kid's native tongue is. Wow. So in my kids, because this is a little Christian school, in my son's class, there are six children oh my God. Uh, who are the same age. One of them is my, my first adopted son. One of them is my new adopted son who speaks no English. One of them is this other kid who started that day and who now speaks fluently my son's language and English. Oh and then there's three other kids. <laughs> my daughter, same experience. And it, it was one of those things where, like, I, it's hard for me to even tell you this without becoming so emotional. But after those two things happened, with my father and then with his family, I, I, I still had a million questions. How are we gonna afford this? There's just so many overwhelming challenges that were ahead of us. And I had no idea how we'd tackle them. But my, at that day, I, I said to God, I am never ever going to ask again how. Mm. And, uh, and truly God has, God's been good for it. It's been incredible what's happened. But anyway, so then we had six kids. Then there was a, uh, this young couple, she got pregnant, but didn't know it. And so one day she's not feeling well, goes into health center at school and uh, six hours later gives birth to a baby. Wow. So one of the, the folks at the hospital calls us up and says, Hey, listen, this couple is kind of losing their minds a little bit. Can you just come and just take this baby for a t few days? Maybe it'll be like a week, you know, something like that, just so that they can figure out what they're going to do. And yeah, okay. We're happy to do that. You know, we'll bring this kid home, but we know this kid's not ever going to be ours, but we're just caring for it as a way of caring for this couple. And the couple's coming over to our house every day. And finally they decide, 
but we want this child to be adopted here. Um, all of a sudden we had seven kids. Oh my gosh, this is just totally insane. Seven kids. And uh, well, now we're done. Really, we're done. You know what I mean? I thought we were done at two. I knew we were done at three. For sure, we're done at six. Okay, seven, we're done. Well, one thing leads to another. And four kids in Uganda, their parents were murdered in a, a tribal conflict. And because of the way that inheritance works, one of them now had inherited all of the cows from the entire tribe. And so they just needed to kill these three more boys. And then all those cows, they do that in order. And then all those cows would transfer over to a different tribe. And cows are wealth. That's the way money is denominated. And so this local missionary went and rescued these kids, hired a guard with a gun 24 hours a day uh, to, to protect the kids. And then was like, I got to get these kids out of this country or they're going to get executed. Huh. And so she'd heard about us, said, hey, can you help me? So we were then doing Facebook posts and sending emails to everybody, trying to convince people to, to adopt these kids. And so, so yeah, we're trying to help, but we can't find anybody who's going to do this because uh, you have to adopt all four kids together. At one point, she has a problem because her visa needs to be renewed. And so she has to leave the country for three days. But she knows if she does that, that the kids will be killed, right? That she and that guard are what's keeping these kids safe. And now she's really feeling desperate. We haven't been able to find anybody. It's Christmas time, so she's going to leave right, right after Christmas. I'm a pastor. Like, by Christmas, I'm exhausted. Right. <laughs> Secondly, I live in Boston and you know, that week after Christmas is like dark, it's cold. And I think, hey, it's only four kids, right? I got seven kids at home. How hard can four be? You know what? I'm gonna kind of make this a win-win. I'm gonna fly over to Uganda. I'll be there for the week to cover her travel and uh, I'll take care of those four kids. And you know, I get kind of a break. I get to rest from doing kind of my work. I'll take a little vacation. You're downgrading the number of kids you have to care for. That's it, that's it, it's only four. <laughs> And none of them speak English. And so I think, how okay, again, like, how hard can this be? We cannot have like big debates about anything. So, so anyway, I go over there. One week turns into six and my whole rest of my family flies over and we fly back with four more kids. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of one of these things. And so anyway, now we have 11. But when I say that we're done, I mean it. I can feel like I can look God honestly in the eye and say, hey, I made a covenant to you all those years ago back in India. And I believe I have fulfilled it. <laughs> and so... If you, if anybody listed this, has some other kids you don't need to be adopted, call someone else. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, all of this has been an incredible blessing. I've learned so much. I've grown so much. And, I, and I'm telling you, I don't want to make this sound all rosy. It has been excruciating. It has cost financially a lot. It's cost emotionally a lot. It's all of my other kids have had to bear the weight of each other. And it's, it's been excruciating. It's, it's taken a toll on our marriage. It's taking a toll on things I could have done in ministry. Mm. But I felt like, okay, this was, this was God's call and this is what it looks like for us to be faithful. And, and so I, and I'm thankful. I feel like it's been a blessed call. But I, I don't think it's the kind of thing people should do lightly. Dave, you started out this story growing up in this wealthy white suburb of Boston yep. with a very white family. And you now live in a fairly affluent white suburb of Boston yep. with a very markedly different family demographic yep. and in a totally different career than what you thought you were going to do growing up. Seeing these as bookends of the story, I just find it remarkable how God has taken you on this journey to bring you back full circle in a way mm -hmm. to the same sort of setting, but in a completely different path yep. and a, in and with a completely different looking family. So yes, it's true. There's this funny journey that God took me on away from my family and the way that I grew up, kind of disavowing one piece at a time. Each of these things, slowly, I had to give up and give up and give up. Yeah. And the price is real, but you get a pearl. And that's of more value than whatever you had to give up. But it didn't mean the things I gave up along the way weren't extremely costly. They were. 
I feel like God has, has sort of has, has made it impossible for me to give up anything. Because every time I gave up something, God gave it back to me. And it just in this different form that I didn't control. And so right now, I actually live in a humongous house uh, <laughs> in, in this gorgeous neighborhood. But I didn't pay for it. it somebody else, one of my close friends who invented all the video games, you know, uh, and a ton of other stuff, like he's just one of these credible people. He saw the way my family was living. All, we had all 13 of us were living in the home that we bought when we were a family of five. And it was, I mean, it was but there's all we can afford. Yeah. And so he and his wife decided to buy us a house. Wow. And that they felt like was the appropriate kind of house for a family our size. So I live in this beautiful house that I didn't pay for. I've got this incredible group of friends and colleagues and brothers and sisters in our church who are all part of the culture that I had 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 to leave behind. I got my family back, right? I told you about my father. Uh, I feel like every single thing I gave up along the way, I got back. But I got back in a way that I don't control. Certainly makes for a fun journey. It has been. And I mean, it's not over, right? I mean, I got a long way to go and I have no idea what the future looks like. So, um, you know, if God were to speak to me and say, hey, Dave, you're going to retire from High Rock, I would receive that as good news. Like, thanks be to God. Or if he would say, hey, Dave, you're going to be fired from High Rock in six weeks. That would be a little tougher to swallow. Yeah. But that's why I'd have to use my open hand prayer and say, thanks be to God. God, I will follow you wherever you lead me. Dave's commitment to following God moved him out of Boston, only to move him back again with a totally different view on God, life, and family. Now he's leading a church and challenging others to have that view on God, life, and family. His commitment to following God has brought him face to face with some very difficult decisions. But what Dave learned throughout his journey is that he will stop asking God how. You can follow the work that Dave is doing at High Rock Church by going to highrockonline.org or by finding High Rock Online on social. Of course, you can always find The Pursuit on social at The Pursuit Cast. Thank you guys so much for listening to The Pursuit. And you know, I'd be really curious to hear your feedback on what has been the most impactful episode of The Pursuit that you've heard so far. So would you go to iTunes and leave a review and tell me what has been your favorite episode thus far? Thanks again to Missio Alliance and to the Sola Network for their partnership with The Pursuit and believing in what we're doing here. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. So to be clear, if I run into a rough patch with my kids, I can't call you to adopt them. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're done. Your kids, though, are great. So your kids will be like, take hey, any other kids. I'm not so sure. <laughs> <laughs>